All right, today we begin a new series in the Old Testament books of 1st and 2nd Samuel. Turn there in your Bibles if you would. 1st and 2nd Samuel, we'll start in 1st Samuel. It's, it's a story of Israel's first kings. Now you may wonder, as we're turning there, as we're getting the series, you, you may wonder, why bother with this? Israel's first kings, a history lesson? What's the difference here? What, what difference does this make? How does this affect me? Well, I'm going to try to answer that, but not until the end of this morning's message. I'll get there. You'll have to be patient, but, but we need first to understand the basics of the story and its place in the Bible. Then we may actually wonder more. Why bother with this? Who cares? What difference does it make for me? But we'll answer that after we've done some of the basics of the story. This message is really a, an overview of First and Second Samuel. Usually when we begin a new series in a book of the Bible like this, we begin with a kind of overview of the whole book so we understand something of it, try to get our arms around it. It's not a, a usual thing for us to do that much Bible in one Sunday, we take smaller chunks usually. In our study of First and Second Samuel, we'll take a chapter or two or three every week because it's story, it's narrative. We went much slower in First Peter. But we'll move along at that kind of clip, and it would be possible to forget the forest for the trees, to miss the forest for the trees in those week-in, week-out studies. So we take that first week to solely focus on the forest, and then week by week, we pick up a tree and we look at it together and talk about it and, and uh, marvel at God's plan together. Notice in your outline, I've chosen a, a driving metaphor, a car metaphor to help us think about this message. We're sitting in the car, let's say. We're at mile marker one at 1 Samuel. But before we hit the accelerator, let's look back. That's the first point in your notes this morning, the rearview mirror. The rearview mirror is Genesis to Ruth. There are eight books before 1 Samuel, and they're all history books. They each tell their own story in their own way, but, but together they make up a whole story. And we should know that whole story. We should know the big picture of God's plan. Like we're picking up in the middle of a story when we turn to 1 Samuel and begin reading, and we should know a little bit about what came before. So maybe you want to leave your finger in 1 Samuel and turn to the table of contents in your Bible. Or uh, you may want to flip through Genesis and different parts of the Bible as I reference them and just glance down. I won't look at specific verses, but I'll just mention um, turns along the road, you could say, that are behind us in the rearview mirror. So like, for instance, Genesis. Genesis 1 to 2 begins with creation. God makes all things good. He puts Adam and Eve in the garden. He's there with them. But Genesis 3, the serpent comes and tempts the woman. She disobeys God. She eats of the tree that God had forbidden. God shows up. Curses are dealt out. Judgment occurs. But in the midst of this judgment and curse, God gives a promise. He says in Genesis 3.15 that the seed of the woman one day will crush the head of the serpent. God will have victory one day through a birth, a baby, a child to be born. Genesis 4-11, to though, certainly don't give any hope of that promise getting fulfilled. By anyone's reckoning, Genesis 4-11 through is thousands of years, plural, 
And most of it is not hopeful at all. Those are dark chapters in the Bible. But then Genesis 12, God shows up in Ur of the Chaldees to find some run-of-the-mill pagan named Abram, and he gives him promises. God's going to do some great things in this man, calling him out of Ur of the Chaldees. He gives him these promises, Genesis 12 and then 15 and 17. The promises are this. First, Abraham's going to have a seed, an offspring. Eventually, there'll be a people, a big people. Eventually, that will be a nation. There'll be a nation in a land. God's going to give them a land, a blessed land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will there be blessed and be a blessing, eventually even to the whole world. That's Genesis 12, 15, 17. The rest of Genesis really just covers four generations of this one family. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah. Four generations, sort of the ins and outs, the ups and downs of this blessed, promised, dysfunctional family. But right before the book ends, you get another odd promise. Odd to us, maybe. Or odd if you're just reading it through and not know what's after this. In Genesis 49, God promises that there will be one day a lion-like ruler to come from the line of Judah. And he'll rule forever. He'll get perfect obedience. He'll rule perfectly. Tuck that away. Exodus, the next book, picks up the story 400 years later. And this family, quote-unquote, is now a people of 2 to 3 million or so. They're a people now. But they're not in this blessed land, and they're not a blessed people so much. They're in slavery, in Egypt, under Pharaoh. Through God's servant Moses, God works powerful, cataclysmic events to set his people free from, from Pharaoh's tyranny. He takes them out of Egypt and into the wilderness to lead them to a promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. But... Because of the people's sin, God takes the long way there, doesn't he? A whole generation dies off in the wilderness before they come to the cusp of the promised land. Throughout all this time, God is not only repeating his promises of old, but he's enlarging them. He he will now also dwell with his people in the midst of the people. He travels with them. When they set up camp, he sets up camp too. Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are all talking about these same years in the wilderness with some overlap. Deuteronomy takes the story to the edge of the promised land and it ends with Moses' death, but not before Moses hands the leadership baton off to a young, strong, godly man, Joshua. And throughout all of these years, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, God keeps repeating the promises and the warnings about being his people and him being their God. And Moses and Joshua, later on, keep pleading with the people for faithfulness to the Lord, faithfulness to the covenant that he made. It's filled with ups and downs, sometimes exuberant affirmations. We will, we will follow him, we will do what he says. Often the next day, wicked denials and idolatry. But back to the narrative there. They're at the edge of the promised land, and Joshua, he has a book named after him. Joshua is the one who leads them in. 
The book of Joshua is about conquest. God has promised them land, but it's land that's right now owned by others. So God is going to plow a path. He's going to have them shove others out. That may not sound fair to you, but God was doing two things at once. He was giving a land to his people, and through that he was also bringing judgment, fair and just, righteous judgment on some really nasty, wicked nations. On any account, Joshua is a book of wars. Amazing military victories, often miraculously wrought by God. And all through these wars, again, Joshua's pleading with the people, remain faithful to Yahweh, trust Him at all times, do not forget what He's done, don't forget who He is. When we get through these wars and we get to a comfy, cozy land and we have rest all around us, don't get used to it, don't forget Him, don't think you did it. Joshua ends on that theme. There's peace on all sides, it seems. War seems to be behind them. God has been fulfilling his promises. They're a large people. They're in a land. They're under blessing. They're getting closer to being a nation as opposed to that ragtag wandering warrior thing they had going in earlier books of the Bible. Then you come to the book of Judges. Judges begins a generation after Joshua's death. And people have mostly forgotten their God. They have not heeded Joshua's warnings. They forgot him. Peace on all sides? Uh, Not quite accurate anymore. There are pockets in the land of their enemies occupying it. Even Jerusalem, what will become their capital city, is still not yet theirs. And most of the people have embraced the gods of the nations around them. Instead of going in and purifying and in judgment, they've gone in and become just like them. There are people, yeah, they're in the land, sort of, but they're not under blessing. In many ways, they're under God's judgment in these years. Many of them have been taken captive by their neighboring nations. It happens enough that eventually, eventually they cry out to, to God for help. God answers. He raises up certain men called judges. Finally, we get to the name of the book, judges. These are like super warriors sent by God, strengthened by God to rescue the people from the the oppression that's around them and the, the nations that have imprisoned them. Guys like Samson and Gideon. They were to be a judicial authority, not just a warrior, but also a judicial authority to decide things for their people and to give punishment where needed. They were also to lead the people in righteousness. But even though they were strong, most weren't godly. They weren't righteous. They're the closest thing in the Bible to superheroes. Yet they're flawed. They're like Hancock, if you've seen that movie. So overall, there's this downward spiral in the book of Judges. Idolatry is on the rise. Leadership is generally weakened. Judges don't lead righteously. The people are in disarray. Their identity as a nation is crumbling. And it ends with these ominous words. The end of Judges. Would you look there? 
21 verse 25 says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. No king, no ruler, no righteousness. There's lawlessness, there's godlessness, it's waywardness, there's raw hedonism, idolatry. Every man for himself. It all looks hopeless. Except for the foreshadow that's there. If you know the rest of the Bible's story, you know there's a foreshadow there. There's no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now chronologically, Judges ends, and then basically 1 Samuel picks up the the rest of the story. But if you're looking down at the table of contents in your Bible, or you know the, the, the Bible book song, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Should I keep going? You don't know it? Well, if you know that song, you know Joshua judges Ruth. That's the order. Joshua judges Ruth, then 1 Samuel. There's a book between Judges and 1 Samuel called Ruth. Ruth is a small story. It's taken from within the years of the Judges. And it's a story of a godly family. Many think of it as a love story. It kind of is. Boaz marries Ruth. She's a widow, a foreign woman, but she trusts in the God of the Bible, Yahweh. So Boaz's people and his mom's people, Naomi's people, those are now her people, and their God is her God. So it's more than a love story. You could say it's a story of conversion. It's a story of Gentile salvation. It's a picture of God's blessings being brought to the nations through the offspring of Abraham. The story of Ruth also shows us that some were godly during the the book of Judges, those years. You'd read Judges and think, man, no one's good. But then you read Ruth and you go, oh, at least there's one good family, maybe more. God always has a remnant. But another important part of Ruth is its genealogy. It has one of those, a genealogy. You probably think the genealogies in the Bible are just speed bumps to slow down your Bible reading. Do I have to read it? Is it sin to not read it? I don't know. I'll do it just in case. Well, genealogies are actually really important in the Bible. They're not fun to read, but they are really important. They tell us who's who. And so Ruth, she has a son with Boaz, and then we're given his genealogy in Ruth chapter 4. It begins with the mother of Judah. Judah. It goes back to Judah. Remember? Lion of Judah. Well, he's in that line, Ruth's son is. And then the genealogy ends like this. Boaz fathered Obed. He was the father of Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Is this ringing any bells? If you've been a Christian for a while, if you're familiar with the Bible enough, these, these bells are going off in your head. Wait a minute, this is before David. Of course, it's written after David because it records David, but it's telling us that one to come... David, he's in this line, goes back to Judah, goes through Ruth, and one day will land on Jesse and his, and his son. 
So Ruth is a happy and hopeful book. But don't forget that broader picture of Israel's state in those days. Don't forget that ending in Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Okay, now we've looked in the rearview mirror. We take our eyes off the rearview mirror. We look out the front window. Let's hit the gas pedal. Secondly, let's do a quick drive-by with the landmarks of First and Second Samuel sort of zooming past us. It really will be a quick drive-by, not as quick as what we just did. We just did Genesis to Ruth in 10 or 12 minutes or something, and, and now we'll do 55 chapters in First and Second Samuel. You should know, in the Hebrew Bible, First and Second Samuel is just called Samuel. It was one story. It's probably too big for our liking today, so our English Bibles chop it into First and Second Samuel. But it really is just one story. It begins in 1 Samuel chapter 1 with a barren woman, Hannah. She's a godly woman who trusts the Lord and she prays for God to intervene in her womb. And he does. And he gives her a son. But this is more than a story of a barren woman and a miraculous baby. Hannah is kind of a, a symbol. She's a, a historical figure, of course. This is real. But, but she's sort of a symbol for Israel. She, she's representative. Israel is barren in these days. Israel is hopeless in these days. There's only a few poor ones, you could say, who are crying out to the Lord and asking for his intervention. And that's what the following chapters of 1 Samuel describe. When Hannah's praying thanking the Lord for this coming son. At that time, there's a judge in Israel named Eli. He's both high priest and judge. He's not too bad, actually, but his sons are first-class idiots. They're sort of like associate priests. And, and they steal from the sacrifices of God. They steal from God's sacrifices with, with, with no guilt whatsoever in their hearts, no no, searing, no conscience being, uh, being exercised. And when Eli, their, their dad, finds out about it, he basically only slaps their wrist. These are the guys in charge. A weak dad and wicked sons. At the same time, they're at war with the Philistines. Still, they've been at war and on the losing end of that war with the Philistines since Judges 13. In Samuel 4, the Philistines capture the ark, not Noah's ark, the gold box that was on Indiana Jones, that one. Before that, it was in the Bible. That, that gold ark was a symbol of God's presence. It's not just them taking something that's, that's theirs or is worth a lot of money or one day will be a, an antique or you know, a relic. It's a symbol of the presence of God. It's his seat or his throne, as it were. And it's been stolen. It's like God himself has been captured from the land and held by the Philistines. When Eli the priest hears that the ark has been captured, he falls over backwards, breaks his neck, and dies. In the same battle where they captured the ark, Eli's two sons were killed. One of the wives of these two sons was pregnant, about to give birth at this very time. When she hears news that her husband is dead, the ark has been captured, the army defeated again, she goes into labor. She gives birth. 
And she names the baby Ichabod, which means the glory has departed. God's glory, his presence has departed. In a sense, he's not dwelling in the midst of his people like he was. The only bright spot in these chapters is Samuel. That's the name of Hannah's miracle baby. He's been somewhat in the background through those early chapters of 1 Samuel. But then in chapter 6, he's appointed as judge. He's now Israel's leader. He's Israel's last judge also. And he's godly. He's faithful. This is a good thing. The guy now in charge is, is this promised son given through Hannah a miracle birth. He's the righteous leader of the people. You get two good chapters with Samuel. You get chapter 6 where the ark returns. And you get chapter 7 where he leads the people in defeat over the Philistines. But then in chapter 8, he's getting old. So he appoints his two sons as judges. And they're about as bad as Eli's two sons. They're wicked, greedy, corrupt, They don't honor the Lord. And it's because of this appointment that the people of Israel now begin to cry out. This public mantra begins to grow. Give us a king. Give us a king. It says, 1 Samuel 8, 5, appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Now, from one angle, there's nothing wrong with this. I mean, God promised a ruler to come from Judah. Remember that? And Deuteronomy 17 predicted that a future king would reign in Israel. But from another angle, there are a few different missteps with Israel's cry for a king. For one, they want to be like the nations. There's nation envy going on. They want to be like them. We're we're this weird group that doesn't have a king. No one's ever heard of that. Everyone has kings. We've got this weird system, judges. They rule, but they're not kings. We want a king. It's cruel to have a king. They also, secondly, you could say wrong with this outcry for a king, is they desire a king who is like the kings of the nations. They want a certain kind of king. They want a guy who's big and tall, who's good at battle. He leads the army into the battle. He kicks butt, and he takes no prisoners. That's what they want. And really, this is mostly wrong because essentially they are rejecting the current king of Israel, Yahweh. Yahweh. God says this to Samuel. He says, Samuel, they're not rejecting you by their call for a king. They're rejecting me. And they persist for this call for a king for so long, eventually God says, fine. He gives them what they want, which is not always a good thing. So their first king... Saul. He's handsome. We're told that like multiple times. He's handsome. He's really handsome. It's kind of weird. He's tall. He's really tall. He's a head taller than anyone else in Israel. He's mighty in battle. As far as righteousness goes, he's not all that bad at first. Things look pretty hopeful under Saul. He defeats the enemies that have been plaguing Israel. A battle with the Amorites in chapter 11, a battle with the Philistines in chapter 13. He wins both. Samuel seems pretty happy about the whole thing throughout all this. But then don't hold your breath. 
Because chapter 13 comes and there is a fatal turn of events. Saul plays loose with God's sacrifices, disobeys God's law and his ways, dishonors God, really proving that he didn't trust God. It may seem small to us, but it's big enough that Samuel says, God is now going to rip the kingdom out of your hand in the hands of your offspring, and he will give it to another. doesn't happen for a while, but it's promised. We're told the spirit, God's spirit withdrew from Saul from that point on. From that point on, there's a downward trajectory. God's going to take the kingdom from him and give it to another? Who? David. David. The first Samuel is about three guys, basically. Samuel, Saul, and David, if that helps you. And the writer of 1 Samuel seems to emphasize the differences between Saul and David, especially their physical appearance. Remember, Saul was handsome and tall, handsome and handsome, tall, and and mighty in battle and strong and impressive. David shows up and he's a little shepherd boy. His brothers are in battle, they're soldiers. He's not. He takes care of sheep and, and runs snacks to the front lines. That's cute. But God is with David. David is God's man. And God is David's God. David is, we're told, a man after God's own heart. David trusts Yahweh like Moses did and like Joshua did. He knows that the battle is the Lord's. It's his victory. It's in his hand. Just like Joshua knew and said again and again, We see it so clearly in the first story of David and Goliath in 1 Samuel 17, right? Here's little David facing this nine-foot giant, and he doesn't come with sword. He doesn't come with shield. We saw this just a few weeks ago. He comes with a, a stone because he's confident in the Lord. David's now the hero of the nation, They have parades for him. They sing songs about him. He's known. He's loved by everyone. And King Saul, still king at the time, is jealous. Real jealous. Saul knows what God said would happen, but he resists it with everything in him, futile as it is. What's happening? The exalted Saul is being humbled. The humble David is being exalted. God loves to work that way. It's all over the Bible. God loves to use what's simple, what looks weak, what looks dumb or silly or broken or small so that he gets the glory to show that it's his power and his doing and not any of our own. Well, Saul's Saul's jealousy of David eventually turns to just senseless Hatred. Eventually, Saul becomes consumed with killing David. And by chapter 21 of 1 Samuel, David has to flee town. He's on the run, and Saul is chasing him. Because of this chase going on chapter after chapter, this game of hide and seek, the nation's falling apart behind Saul. All he cares about is killing David and protecting his line. And throughout all those chapters, you see again and again, example after example of David's faithfulness to the Lord, his trust in the Lord, his humility before the Lord, his worship of the Lord. And you see more and more, waxing worse and worse, Saul's wickedness and pride 
selfishness and senselessness until it ends the last chapter of 1 Samuel with, with his suicide. Of course, that makes the way for David. 2 Samuel begins with David as the king, basically. His inauguration happens later, but he's the king-elect, you could say, and he's God's king. He's God's man. This is Jesse's son, remember? This is the grandson of Rachel, uh, Ruth, Ruth, rather. He's from the line of Judah. He's a righteous ruler. He's mighty in battle. He's good. He's a man after God's own heart. He, he prioritizes his life with God at the center. Sees everything through the lens of what God thinks, what God would have him do. And under him, God's people flourish. Under David, the enemies around Israel are finally defeated. And that's been a long time coming. Not fully in Joshua's day, certainly not in the days of the judges, certainly not in Samuel's day or Saul's day, but now with David, finally, the Philistines, all the others, they're, they're defeated. There's finally now that thing God promised, being in the land with peace on all sides. It seems as though God's promises are fulfilled or being fulfilled I mean, Abraham's seed is now a people. They're in the land. They're a mighty nation. They're blessed by God. God is dwelling in the midst of his people. And he's reigning on the earth through his anointed. In fact, God even enlarges his promises at this time. In 2 Samuel 7, turn there or listen to this. God enlarges the promises of old. When he says in verse 12... When your days are fulfilled, David, and you lie down with your fathers, you die, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, a temple, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, and your throne shall be established forever. Forever's a long time. That's a big promise. And it's stated three times. Oh, it looks like a happy ending. Until 2 Samuel 11, when David spots Bathsheba, appropriately named because she's in a bath. He ogles her. Eventually he commits adultery with her and then murders her husband. And he covers it up. We're told this thing that David did displeased the Lord. It's God's man, but the Lord is displeased. Oh, after being confronted, eventually, David, he, he clearly repents. It seems genuine for sure. God forgives him, but, but it also raises the question, is this the guy? Is this the one we've been waiting for? Is this the promised one? Is this the Lord's anointed? Is this the ruler from Judah who's like a lion and reigns righteously and, and garners perfect obedience? Is this the one? Well, the last chapter of 2 Samuel shows us another indication that it's not. There, David is counting up the people of Israel, a census, which doesn't sound too bad to us, except he's taking the pulse of the strength of his nation, relying on that strength in the face of other threats 
from other nations. Really, it signaled a, a lack of trust for Yahweh to protect the people. It was a very un-Joshua thing to do. And it brought, a, brought upon a plague to the people. Well, maybe David's son will be the one. If it's not David, maybe, maybe the next one. I mean, after all, God spoke about one who will come from you and said a lot of big things about him. Yeah, but we go to the next book, 1 Kings. David dies. Solomon inherits his throne. It looks good. Solomon builds the temple, a house for God in the middle of his people. You got peace on all sides. You got incomparable national riches, a blessing to the nations in many ways. It keeps growing and growing. It's up and up all the way through to 1 Kings 11. And then 1 Kings 12 comes, and we're told that the kingdom is split in half. It's divided, it's broken. There are now two, not one. And the rest of the Old Testament just seems to go south from there. A couple bright spots here and there. A uh, good king there. Okay one there. But mostly, it never gets as good as 1 Kings 11. 1 Kings 11 is the high point and then seems to spiral down. And so you're left wondering, what about God's promises? What about his fulfillment? Who, who is he? What's he up to? And is he really in control? Is he really good? Are these promises really valid? Well, that leads us to the third thing, navigation. We drove past the story real fast. It took a while, but we drove fast. Now we have to ask how to approach the story. How do we approach it? How do we understand it? The first thing we have to do is understand the problem. You see, the problem presented in the early chapters of 1 Samuel is not about the inadequacy of a certain form of government, that it's better to move from judges to a king. When it says there was no king in Israel in those days, everyone did what was right in his own eyes, we probably should emphasize the second half as the main part of the problem, not the first half. It's not that a king fixed the sin of the people, did it? No form of government brings some sort of some sort of panacea to the world, right? We shouldn't think that inserting democracy into country after country all of a sudden solves all that country's problems. See Iraq. What we should think is that again and again God's word and even history shows us the same problem plaguing us besides regardless of the form of government, it's sin. Rebellion against our maker. First Samuel and every book before it gives us stories of the horrors of rejecting God's rule. But it also gives us stories that show his patience and his persistence in restoring his peace and his righteousness. So we have to get the promises right. We have to understand these promises as they are and as they're given to us. You see, the stories and characters of the Old Testament are often like a, often like a yup or a nope. So some guy comes along and, and the fulfillment of God's promises seem to get closer through him or through the circumstances around him. It seems like, yes, it's a yup. He might be the one. Yup. And then there's always a oh, nope. Right after, right? Oh, yeah. Nope. Oh, no, nope. 
Or there's this giant nope, and there's these little blips of yep, 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 right? That's Ruth in the middle of Judges. Judges is a big nope. And then there's, yep, yep, little family. Little family that follows God's ways. Some guys are just flat out nopes, right? Like, like Samuel's son. Samuel was a yup. He's an answer to prayer. He's a great stabilizer. He's the prophet of God. He's faithful. He's the leader. And God's people generally flourish under righteous rule. Proverbs talks about that. But his sons were a big fat nope. Saul, despite getting appointed because the people sinfully wanted a king like the nations, once he's king, it looks hopeful for a while. He's a yup. But then he's clearly a nope. With David, so frequently, it's yup, 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 yup. And then there are these bigs, oh, nope, nope, no, no. It, really? You did that? David himself talked about the coming of a king who would come in glory, and all the earth should lift up its gates and get ready. Psalm 24. David said that. He knew he wasn't the yup. John the Baptist, to go to the New Testament, he sent his disciples to Jesus one day to ask this question. Are you the one or should we wait for another to come? Are you the one who's to come or should we wait for another? The one to come, that's the question. Who is it? Who's the king? You know what Jesus said to John's disciples when they said, are you the one? He said, yep. In a roundabout way. He said, yeah, go back and read the prophecies and see what I'm doing. That, that's me. Yep. And the apostle Paul similarly tells us that Jesus, in Jesus, all of God's promises and plans are yes and Amen. He's the one. He's the son. He's the seed of the woman who will crush Satan's head. He's the lion-like ruler from Judah. He's Abraham's seed. He is the blessing to the nations. He's God's anointed, God's son. He's the king. He's the Messiah. And he's also David's son. And that's how those promises of an eternal throne from the line of David get fulfilled. Solomon wasn't going to live forever. There wouldn't be an unbroken, eternal chain of David's kids reigning. That, lane, that, that chain broke. But instead there was one who came along who was of that line, and he himself was eternal. It stops with him. He reigns forever and ever. And that's why Matthew begins his account of Jesus' life with these words. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David... The son of Abraham. Genealogies matter, don't they? Tells us who Jesus is. It reminds us, uh, it reminds us of the promises of God. Jesus himself said, and this is the very theme at the end of our Bibles, Revelation 22, he said, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. How is he the, de- the root of David? And the descendant of David. The root is like the thing from which David comes. If he's the root of David, that means he's before David. And yet he's also the descendant of David. He's after David. What? It doesn't make any sense unless he's both God and man, eternal and born of a woman. 
He's the one. And he's not only a righteous ruler. He's not only the righteous ruler and the king of the world. He's also a perfect sacrifice for sin. David could never have done that. Even at his best, take out Bathsheba, take out the census, remove every sin from the record. David can't pay for the sins of the people, and neither can the sacrifices of the Old Testament. You see, we need something more than just a righteous ruler. We need a savior. We need a sacrifice. We need a substitute in our place. He died, the righteous one for the unrighteous ones, to bring us to God. The king died in the place of the rebels. Who'd think that up? The shepherd laid his life down for the sheep. And you think, I've heard that before. We're used to that language if we're Christians and been in church for a while. But think about it. The shepherd laid his life down for the sheep? Jesus did. Do you know this king like this? Do you believe that he is both king and savior? Both lion and lamb? Both ruler and shepherd? Do you believe he died in your place to forgive your sins and restore you to fellowship with God? You pray you'd know that. Every week there are people up front with name tags on. They're here to answer questions you might have, to counsel you, especially if you're not a Christian, to, to give you a Bible if you don't have one and show you some places to start reading. We would love to serve you as you explore Christ, as you think about him, as you consider him. And we pray you wouldn't consider him long, but without delay you would cling to him and flee from the wrath to come. You see, he's coming again one day, Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. We pray that you would do that now before he comes back. Because when he comes back, it is too late. You will bow by force, not in worship. And you will be judged, not according to that bow, but according to the sin that you've clinged to and the ruler that you've rejected your whole life. Don't let that happen. Cling to Christ instead. He's good. He's a righteous ruler, but he's compassionate and gentle and meek. Now, fourth, we're already kind of getting into it, but let's talk about the destination, this, this question of why bother? Why bother look back at First and Second Samuel? Why, why bother with our Old Testaments? Why bother studying it or reading it or, or doing a sermon series in a book like this about Israel's first kings? Well, of course, we do it because it's true. It's real history, not just mythology. We look back to the Old Testament because it's part of our story as Christians, right? In a sense, this is our heritage. We look back because we should, because it's God's word, not just history. And he tells us to read it. And we look back to, to passages like First and Second Samuel to, to look through First and Second Samuel like you look through glasses you look through glasses to see something else. We look through First and Second Samuel to see Jesus, to see the king, to, to hear the anticipation, to note the foreshadows. They wrote history back then with clever hints, clues, uh, repeated words, 
little foreshadows, little winks here and there in the story. We're not used to reading history that way. We think it's just facts in, it's telling objective information, it's the story. But, but they didn't think of history like that. They preached history. So we go back and we see this story preached. See Jesus in the middle of it. We look back to the Old Testament to see the wonder and the glory of the fulfillment of God's plan, to see the intricate details of his word giving us these winks and these nudges and this look and this foreshadow. To see God's faithfulness and to see his commitment to his glory and his name. To see his patience with sin again and again. To see his faithfulness to his promises that are, are, it's ours, it's He's our God. That same God is our God. And he's still at work. And if they should have done what they should have done, like trust him or, or not doubt and not sin, not turn to idolatry, how much more us today? We look back to the Old Testament in part to contrast it with our own day. To remember that in many ways they were groping about. They had promises here, warnings there, They knew something big was coming. They didn't know if it was yesterday or tomorrow or a million years or what. There's some mystery to it all, and we we don't have quite the mystery that they did. We look back to the Old Testament to see God, to see him at work and to see his glory on display. And we also look back to the Old Testament, don't forget, to see ourselves. Because we do have some things in common with these rascals back there, don't we? In many ways, at many times, we do very similar things. It may not be as public. It may not be called the same name or be the exact same kind of sin, but it all, it's all satanic. It's all part of that battle, that epic battle of time. The serpent against the woman's seed. Saul against David. The rulers of the nations have pitted themselves against the Lord and his anointed, Psalm 2. This is the story through all the ages. And at times we look back and see them switching teams for a moment. I'm like, what? We do the same. So we look back to the Old Testament to, to see portraits which powerfully remind us to not trust in self. To trust in God, to trust his plan, to trust his ways, to trust his promises at all times. To see that God often turns things upside down. The exalted get humbled, the humble get exalted. These same stories in some ways get played out before our eyes again and again and again throughout all of life. Right? There are Goliaths and Davids and right? we're either acting against the Lord and his anointed, or for the Lord and his anointed. So we look back to to see that idolatry is insane, and sin has consequences. To feel the horror of rejecting the king. To feel the hopelessness of that saying, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And remind ourselves that we do the same thing whenever we know the Lord said don't, and we do. We look back to the Old Testament in part to see the portrait of faithfulness and the beauty of going God's ways.
being a man after his own heart, walking in communion with him, trusting him even when his promises seem sure, but slow, slow, slow. I mean, David's anointed as the king, and for decades he's exiled, on the run, life in danger, in caves, no food to eat. But then the promises come. We look back to to see the reminder to finish well, to not be a Saul, to not be a Solomon. And we also look back at the Old Testament because those were waiting people, and we still are too. The Lord will come again. He will come again. The king will come again, and he will, he will bring perfect justice. He will crush all his enemies. He will vindicate his name completely and universally. He will make all things right. He will make all things new. He will bring in a kingdom that is global. Heaven and earth will be one. The curse will be utterly demolished. Death will be no more. The king will come again. We're waiting people. We don't know when he'll come. It could be tomorrow or, or a million years from now or something. But, but we're waiting people and we're trusting people because just like they waited a really long time, but eventually it came, so too with us. We may wait a very long time, but it's coming. And it's sure he will come again. Let's pray. Father, we pray for those here who who will not bow before Jesus, who oppose the king and his rule and his ways. Lord, would you break into hearts? Would you make soft, hard ones and make alive the dead ones? And Would you give faith to see? Would you give them salvation today? Father, we pray as Christians that we would continue to bow the knee in our hearts every, every second and every part of our life to recognize the reign of King Jesus and our part in his kingdom more and more. For his namesake and for our good, keep us from sin. Lord, keep us going. Preserve us in faith. Preserve this church if it be your will. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that your capital C church will, will forever reign. And, and It's sure. You will build your church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And one day, Lord Jesus, you will come again to bring us to yourself. We long for that day. We pray with John in Revelation. Even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Come quickly. And until then, may your name be great. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us what we need. Help us to trust you. Keep us from sin. We pray your name would be hallowed because you're glorious, you're the king, and you're our king, and you're the coming king. So we're eager to sing about that now, Lord. Amen.